All right, well, this is uh, What Lies Ahead, our continuing study of the end times, and today we're going to wrap up the uh, look at the Olivet Discourse. So we've been, for the last eight or nine weeks, uh, looking at what Jesus said about His return, and uh, as a part of this overall study on what lies ahead. And so today we'll finish that up. And then, of course, we've got a, big, a busy couple of weeks uh, ahead of us here at Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, I want to mention uh, that next week, of course, is our patriotic celebration, God and Country Day. We're going to have an outdoor service with a big tent, uh, catered barbecue, all kinds of activities and fun stuff next week. But there will not be our 9 o'clock Bible study. We'll just meet at 10 o'clock here on the grounds uh, for, our, uh, for our patriotic celebration. Then the following week, again, we won't have our regular 9 o'clock hour because we're going to be having our creationism conference that Saturday and Sunday, July 10th and 11th, with Russ Miller, who I've been talking with this week. He's really excited about coming and looking forward to a fantastic time together. So he'll have both sessions on Sunday, July 11th, uh, the 9 o'clock and the 10 o'clock. And so then on the 18th, we also have a guest speaker, the president of Florida Bible College is going to be in town and he's going to be sharing, so he'll have both sessions. So this is really a good kind of, it's nice that it worked out that we're wrapping up the Olivet Discourse today and then we'll end up taking about a three-week hiatus, but then we'll pick back up again because there's still a lot more to talk about uh, in terms of the end times. We've got uh, to talk about the new heavens and the new earth, about the millennium, the nature of the millennium, the uh, all kinds of stuff that happens after the second coming of Christ. So we're by no means through with this series, uh, but just to make you aware that because of all of our summer festivities and activities, uh, the 9 o'clock hour will be preempted for the next two or three weeks. Uh, but hope you'll still come out, not next week. Next week is 10 o'clock only for our patriotic celebration. But the following two weeks, as we have special events at the 9 o'clock hour, I hope you'll come out and uh, be here for that. So, um, once again, uh, we're kind of tracking, at least content-wise, maybe not chapter by chapter, but in terms of overall content, uh, with my book, What Lies Ahead. Those are available on the back uh, table, and I brought some more up and put them under the table, because we only have a couple left on top. If you, we run out, you can uh, grab one from under the table. Uh, so, I won't take the time to review like I did last week every single section uh, because I want to make sure we have plenty of time to get through the sheep and the goats judgment which is the final section of, uh, of the Olivet Discourse but just to put it in perspective remember the Olivet Discourse is that teaching that Jesus gave from atop the Mount of Olives on Wednesday of Passion Week uh, pa what do we mean by Passion Week sometimes I say things and I forget maybe I'm using words that people aren't familiar with so when we talk about Passion Week, what are we talking about, Jeff? The week before his crucifixion. Yeah, the week leading up to Christ's crucifixion. So as you remember, he arrives in Bethany on a Sunday. By Monday morning, he's riding into Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. Even though we historically celebrate that on Sunday, we know that that actually took place on Monday. And then all of the events of that week, you know, the... Uh, the cursing of the fig tree, the overturning of the tables of the money changers, the conflict in the temple there, uh, ultimately the upper room discourse on Thursday night, and then of course by Friday he's laid in the tomb and resurrected on Sunday. So Passion Week, uh, kind of uh, in the middle of that, on, uh, on that Wednesday, uh, the disciples 
begin to really get antsy about the timing of the kingdom. And even though Jesus had made it clear, especially as he got closer and closer to the end of his three and a half year ministry, closer and closer to the cross, he continued to highlight the fact that you know suffering has to come first and the cross comes before the crown and those types of things. But the disciples still didn't connect all the dots. And so they were uh, really beginning to get antsy. And so they asked him this question. And there's a lot more going on contextually, but we've talked about it a lot, so I'll just cut right to the chase, which is, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? In other words, when will this kingdom that we've been waiting for now, for really, if you go back to the Abrahamic promise, 2,000 years, when will it finally come? And so this sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse is Jesus' answer to that question. And so he starts out, uh, in verse 4 of Matthew 24 and 25. By the way, we've been sort of focusing on Matthew's account. Mark and Luke also include this uh, account, this sermon, in Mark 13 and Luke 21. Uh, but we're using Matthew as the primary outline. And in beginning in chapter 24, verse 4, all the way to verse 14, he gives general signs of uh, the tribulation period that will immediately precede Christ's return and the establishment of the kingdom. Then he zeroes in in verse 15 with specific signs that will indicate they're getting even closer. And the biggest one of those specific signs is the abomination of desolation. And Jesus actually refers to Daniel by name and cites Daniel's prophecy that at the midpoint of this seven-year period that Daniel talked about and Jesus talks about, uh, the Antichrist himself will set himself up as God in the temple and demand that everyone worship him. And then in verses 27 to 31, uh, Jesus gives some specific signs that will accompany his second coming. In other words, when you see these things, it's happening. There'll be a sign uh, of the Son of Man in the heavens, and then the lightning from the east to the west, and so forth. And then he returns. The nation of Israel, in belief, is regathered into the land. So individual uh, Jews, I got this question by email this week from someone uh, who was watching this online, and they said, so... You know, when will the nation of Israel believe? Uh, will it be right at Christ's second coming, right after Armageddon? And I said, no, individual Jews will be believing the gospel throughout the tribulation. There will be a great harvest, not just of Jews, but of people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language. So there will be a lot of people believing the gospel during that seven-year tribulation. But then when Christ comes back, those Jews who have believed will then constitute the national deliverance into the kingdom. And it will be supernatural, Matthew 24, 31. Uh, so they will literally be transported <coughs> from wherever they are throughout the world. And at that point, they'll likely be hiding out in the hills and caves and trying to be uh, protected from the Antichrist's reign of terror. Because remember, at the three-and-a-half-year midpoint, he turns his, uh, his wrath upon Israel in particular. And he's trying to seek out Jews that didn't take the mark of the beast and, and martyr them. So, but wherever they are, Christ will send the angels to regather them into land, and that will begin then the, the, the kingdom era. And then the rest of the Olivet Discourse, which we've been in the last several weeks, is all sort of exhortation, practical application, sort of the meaning of all of this teaching. By the time you get to verse 31, Christ has come back. He's explained and answered their question, which is, what will be the sign of your coming? But then he sort of gives the, like a good preacher, the, the what do I do with this? The so what question. And so 
he is really speaking to the generation that will be alive when all of this happens, which is very normal for prophecies. Prophecies always are speaking to a historic audience with a view to the audience that will see the fulfillment of the, of the uh, prophecy in the same way, for example, that Isaiah prophesied in multiple places about the, return of, about the uh, birth of Christ and the suffering of Christ. And he was speaking to an 8th century B.C. audience, but obviously it was the future 1st century Jewish audience that saw the realization of those prophecies. So in the same way, Jesus is speaking to the disciples, but he's talking about the future generation that will be alive at that time when he comes back. And he says, when you see the fig tree start to sprout leaves, you know that summer is near. In the same way, when you see all these things I've just described, you know that my return is near. In fact, the generation that sees all these signs will be the generation that sees my return. And so then he gives a series of watchfulness uh, analogies and parables. We said starting with the parable of the fig tree, it goes parable, analogy, 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 parable. So you got, you know, a total of five in that, uh, in that segment. Uh, and they're all about watchfulness. It's all about being ready. Uh, you know, if the thief had known, if the householder had known what hour the thief would come, he wouldn't have let his house be broken into. Uh, just as it was in the days of Noah when people were warned and yet ignored the warning and then they were swept away in destruction. In the same way, when Christ comes back, if you ignore these warnings, you're going to be swept away in judgment and destroyed. Um, and so then uh, we got uh, to the parable of the talents uh, last week, which is not necessarily a watchfulness parable. It's more of a uh, you know exhortation to the nation of Israel that you've had all of this... Um, opportunity and place of special privilege or the apple of God's eye and so on and so forth and yet uh, you know you'll have one final chance here the hour is late you'll have one final chance to receive the kingdom and respond favorably to the offer of the kingdom and then that brings us to the sheep and the goats judgment so before we get to verses 31 to 46 I thought it would be good to kind of highlight what we call the eschatological judgments so who can tell me what eschatology is? Study of the end times. It's literal. That's right. It's literally last things. So we say study of the last things or study of the end times, the end of the age. And so when we say eschatological judgments, these are all the judgments in Scripture that are coming in the future. Now, this chart, you don't need to necessarily copy it down unless you just want to, but it's in the chart book, uh, or I'm happy to send you just this chart if you want uh, in a PDF format. Uh, but uh, so the, the, the five future judgments that Scripture speaks of, first of all, are the judgment seat of Christ. Now, that's a little bit of a misnomer in terms of its name. We call it that because Paul uses that analogy of the judgment seat, which was a very common, it's called the Bema in Greek. It's a very common cultural thing in the town square or the agora. They would set up these raised platforms, not unlike the platform that, that I'm on up here, and a magistrate would sit on this platform and people would bring their cases, their disputes, to the magistrate who would uh, settle them. And, and Paul uses that common cultural, uh, you know, relevant reality to, as an analogy to say someday all believers will stand before Christ and give an account of what we've done. Now, this is not a judgment to see who gets into heaven and who doesn't. That issue's already been settled once for all. 
Uh, Jesus said, if you believe in me, you have passed from death to life and shall never come into judgment. So it's a done deal. That's the words of Christ. So this is not a judgment in the sense of a punishment. Uh, it's a judgment in, in the sense of an evaluation, right? And there are no damages doled out, no punishment doled out at the judgment seat of Christ, only rewards. And this is talked about a lot in Scripture. I have an entire chapter on it in the book, What Lies Ahead. Uh, it's, it's only for believers of the church age. It happens after the rapture. And it's when we will receive the rewards that are promised by every New Testament writer mentions rewards. Uh, and uh, every, uh, almost every book of the New Testament mentions rewards, but every writer. And so you see that in passages like Romans 14, 12, 1 Corinthians 3, and 2 Corinthians 5. And those rewards are, could be all kinds of things, but primarily it's, it's positions of service, positions of honor in the kingdom. We've been talking about in our midweek Bible study about how those who uh, are faithful to the Lord until death and actually die a martyr's death, are persecuted unto death, have a special reward, a special place of honor in the kingdom someday. They have a special commendation from our Lord himself who, who sort of... Uh, walks into God's office with his arm around us, I'm speaking metaphorically, obviously, and says, Father, this, is, this one gave his all for you. And he confesses us or commends us before the Heavenly Father. Uh, those who, who don't persevere in their faith and end up, uh, for whatever reason, pressures or whatever, you know, denying the Lord in a place of pressure, they're not going to receive that reward. But, of course, it has nothing to do with our eternal destiny. That issue is settled once and for all the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation. So the judgment seat of Christ is sort of in a class by itself in the sense that there's no punishment, and it's only for believers, and it's only about kingdom rewards for those who faithfully serve the Lord uh, during their earthly lives. Then the next judgment that we see is the judgment of the Antichrist and the false prophet. And remember, the Antichrist is the one who's the world leader, the satanic world leader, ruling at the behest of Satan, under the power of Satan, according to 2 Thessalonians 2. And the false prophet is the second in command. The book of Revelation calls the Antichrist the beast. He's also referred to as the man of sin, the son of perdition, the little horn. Several names are given to him in different prophetic passages of Scripture. But it's one person, one human being, uh, who is already on standby, by the way, because Satan doesn't have the mind of God. He's not omniscient, and he doesn't know when the rapture is going to happen. And, of course, the Antichrist doesn't rise to world power until after the rapture. But this Antichrist, who wreaks havoc on the world for seven years, along with his uh, vice president, let's say, or false prophet, uh, will both be cast into, into eternal punishment in the lake of fire at the return of Christ. And then we get to the sheep and the goats judgment, which is what Jesus is referring to uh, here in the Olivet Discourse at the conclusion of the Olivet Discourse. And it's a very vivid uh, passage of Scripture. Uh, obviously, sheep and goats are metaphors. And as you know, he puts the sheep, he says, I'm going to uh, put the sheep on my rights and the goats on my left. To the sheep, I will say, come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom. To the goats, he will say, depart from me into the everlasting fire prepared for who? Anybody know? And his devil and his angels. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. Let's never forget that. So that's their eventual home too. That's Satan's eventual home too. They will, eat, they will join the beast and the false prophet 
in a time of etern- in a place of eternal torment. Uh, so the sheep and the goats judgment is sometimes called in literature the the judgment of the nations, because in reality the nation of Israel has already received its judgment. Uh, they they've been supernaturally those who've believed regathered into the land, and that's the fulfillment of all kinds of Old Testament passages like Deuteronomy thirty verse three and uh, s- several others. So. Uh, so it's really just the Gentile nations, although I believe, not to parse it too finely, that unbelieving Jews will be part of the goats. I think any unbeliever on planet earth is going to be the ones that are at the return of Christ, cast into uh, the everlasting uh, fire. So really what this judgment becomes is at the return of Christ, it is the judgment to see who gets into the kingdom and who does not? So it's, it's a judgment of entrance into the kingdom, or the alternative is eternal punishment and everlasting fire. So uh, at the start of the millennium, uh, as we've talked about, uh, the only people on earth, so we're talking about right over here, if you can see my large cursor right here, uh, we're talking about this point in time. This is when the sheep and the goats judgment takes place. And at the start of the kingdom, Every human being on earth will be a believer okay, that, are, that are in their physical bodies. There will also be people at the beginning of the kingdom who come back in their glorified bodies. First of all, the church, you and I, remember we were raptured a little more than seven years earlier, at which point we receive our glorified bodies. And in fact, according to Revelation 19, which you see on the screen there under second coming, we are coming back with Christ to help rule and reign in the kingdom. That's the church, the body of Christ. But what about all those Old Testament believers that weren't part of the church? People like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, and so forth. Well, they will receive their glorified bodies at the second coming as well. And we know that from uh, you know passages like uh, you know uh, Daniel 12, Isaiah 26, and places like that. So... Uh, so at the start of the kingdom, you'll have Old Testament believers in their glorified bodies. You'll have church age believers in their glorified bodies. But you have to have some group of people in physical mortal bodies that can procreate and populate the kingdom and the ones who will be the subjects of the kingdom that we are helping Christ reign over. Who are they? Well, they are the ones who survive the tribulation. Remember we talked several weeks ago about Matthew 24, uh, what is it, 13 or 14, where uh, Jesus says, He who endures to the end will be delivered into the kingdom. Passage that's often misunderstood, uh, 13. Because you know people don't understand the context, they don't understand the meaning of the word saved. As we've talked about before, the word saved does not, not always mean heaven or hell, eternally saved. In fact, only 40% of the time it's used in the New Testament does it mean eternal salvation. Most of the time, the word saved, it's the Greek word sozo, just means temporal deliverance. And in the context of the Olivet Discourse, Jesus is saying those who are not martyred, those who survive, endure until the end, will be the ones that get into the kingdom, that are delivered into the kingdom. Yeah? Well, Jesus supernaturally heal all the believers like you know if they let's say were missing body part or something or they got injured somehow is he going to supernaturally just heal them all the the ones that we're talking about that are the physical ones right right after the 
Yeah, so the question is, just to make sure it's uh, caught on the recording, is will Jesus supernaturally heal of believers that are in their physical bodies as they enter the kingdom, like if they were missing an arm or something like that? No, I don't think so, because they're still in their physical bodies. They don't receive their glorified bodies till later. Uh, somehow, and I've written an article on this. If anybody's interested, I'll send it to you. But somehow... We don't have a specific passage we can cite, but as we compare Scripture with Scripture, we know that at the end of the millennium, the old earth and time, space, and matter are destroyed, and, and, and the kingdom continues on in the new heavens and new earth outside of time, space, and matter. There's no night, for example. There's no sun. Uh, there's no light from the sun because the, temp, the uh, throne of the triune God is the light and so forth. So by that point, everybody has to be in their glorified body. Scripture doesn't exactly tell us when millennial saints get their glorified bodies, but my assumption is it's at the end of the millennium. But no, physical, if you're in your physical body, nothing changes until you get your glorified body, unfortunately. I mean, you could you know, exercise and diet. I don't know why anybody would want to do that, but you could have some effect on your physical body, but it won't be fully healed until... Um, maybe, yeah, or maybe like you'll ask God, hey, I'd really like another arm. Yeah, he might. Yeah, three arms. That would be great. <laughs> I mean, you could really get a lot more. You could increase your, uh, you know, output by fifty percent if you had a third arm. Yeah. Could be a lot of miracles in the millennium. That's a good question. You guys all. Since you can see him face to face if you really want to. Well, so obviously we're going to get to the millennium, and it's one of my favorite subjects. And I've got a huge presentation. It'll probably take us multiple weeks to get through that talks about the different characteristics of the kingdom, geographic, social, political, spiritual, physical. Uh, miracles, I mean, obviously miracles will still happen just as they do today. But as you said, we will be able to see Christ directly. He'll be back on earth sitting in the capital of the world, Jerusalem, on the throne, delivering the state of the world address every January. You know, And so we'll be able to talk with him and and he, as we've said before, will rule, the Bible says, with a rod of iron, which means there'll be perfect justice, which means there'll be no, no longer be uh, injustices where guilty people get off uh, by a jury and, uh, and, and innocent people are convicted by it. We won't have that because he will be in charge and he's all-knowing and he can tell if you did it or not. <clears throat> now, I'm speaking there of unbelievers because, not to get too far astray, but <clears throat> as I talk about in that article that I referenced a moment ago, believers will be under the new covenant and will not sin. But, but by the time unbelievers are born, they're born dead in their trespasses and sins like every human being, Ephesians 2.1, and they will grow up and do what everybody does, which is sin. And so there will be a, eventually a population of unbelievers on the earth and sin will still uh, be a reality. It won't be as bad as it is now when Satan is the prince of this world and the whole world is under the sway of the wicked one because the whole world will not be under the sway of the wicked one. They'll be under the control of the Messiah. But nevertheless, there will still be sin. And when that happens, it will be adjudicated justly, unlike uh, today. So, yeah. So I know the Bible tells us so about the millennial kingdom things that go on during that. But I was just wondering, do you ever have discussions about why after Jesus has his initial just judgment, everyone left as a believer, why not just move into the new heavens and new earth? Yeah, that's a great question. So the question is, 
why um, once Christ comes back and all uh, everyone on earth is a believer, why not just go straight into the eternal state? Why do we need that 1,000-year millennial phase of the kingdom? And I'm guessing you probably know the answer or have an answer. You're just asking for the benefit of all of us, right? No. Okay. <laughs> oh, I was going to have you answer it. Um, so, uh, no, that's a great question. And the answer is that God is wanting to remove every possible excuse from the mind of man uh, and, and, and prove that, prove really the depravity of man, prove that even under the most idyllic, perfect, ideal conditions, mankind is still a sinner. See, right now, people, and I, I write about this in my book, Top Ten Reasons Some People Go to Hell. Right now, people have various reasons why they might shake their fist at heaven and say, it's not fair that my child drowned, or it's not fair that my mom had cancer, or it's not fair that I lost my job, or God isn't, why, why, did, why is there suffering in the world? Unfair suffering, right? Car accidents, whatnot. In the, king, in the millennial phase of the kingdom, none of that will happen. And yet, as we see in Scripture, the heart of man is desperately wicked, and people will eventually still reject Christ, even in the midst of those conditions. And there will be, by the end of the thousand years, a great number of unbelievers who once again conspire with Satan in one final futile attempt on Satan's part to overcome the world, and, uh, and they'll fail uh, because Christ is, Christ is the victor. He's already defeated Satan ultimately at the cross. But, uh, so it's really just uh, you know, a way to highlight the sinfulness of man and the justness of God. Yeah. So I know you're going to get into this in that whole millennium thing that you're going to do, but in case we're raptured before, I want to ask you now. Well, we can talk about it in heaven if that happens. <laughs> I'll know everything. That's then. true, yeah. But what then will be the lifespan of oh, those yeah. living in the millennium? And when they die, if they die, I mean, are we going back to when people lived 900 yes, years? Yes, absolutely. So that's what it is. So there won't be... Death? No, there will be, but Isaiah tells us that if someone dies at age 100, it'll be as if they're dying in infancy. So, okay. so the Bible is coming full circle from Genesis to Revelation. It, it tells a story, obviously, of the fall and redemption of mankind, but it, it's, it's coming back full circle to a pre-fall Edenic state like it was in the garden before the fall. And so, obviously, in the early days after the fall, man... The, the corruption of sin had not had enough time to really, you know, perpetuate throughout the bloodlines and throughout humanity, so people lived a lot longer, eight, nine hundred years. Over time, that changed, particularly after the flood, but uh, at the in, when Christ is on the throne, since there will not be any accidental death, and this goes back to uh, Gary's uh, question, so there will be no car accidents or accidental death. If someone dies, it'll either be an unbeliever dying as a direct consequence of their sin, judgment, like they got the death penalty, or it'll be, um, you know, really that's it. They'll, they'll die unbelievers of their own consequence, you know, uh, but no accidental death. So, um, so yeah, people will live longer. Uh, and maybe this touches on what Jeff was talking about, miracles. You know, maybe uh, we won't have to rely on, you know, big pharma to try to cure cancer, you know. If we'd spend as much money on determining the cause of cancer versus the cure, we'd probably solve it overnight. But anyway, that would, the big pharma execs wouldn't like that. They'd lose all their money. So, um, 
So, you know, yeah, I think there are a lot, lot of reasons we can speculate as to why people will live longer, but we know they will, according to Scripture. So, uh, yeah. Is there an equivalent of a Bema seat judgment for Old Testament? Not that we know of. So the question is, is there an equivalent of a Bema judgment uh, for Old Testament saints? Um, now, I've seen some Bible teachers, Bible scholars, theologians that uh, speculate that the Bema is for Old Testament saints, too. I don't think so. I think the text is, is only addressing church-age believers. But um, they, Old Testament saints have their place, to be sure. I mean, Jesus talked about how they'll be present at the banqueting table, at the, you know, at the uh, marriage supper, at the kickoff of the kingdom. The first thing that happens in the kingdom is this massive banquet, celebrating the, the start of it. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 8 that people will come from the east and the west, meaning Gentiles, to sit down with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So clearly they will have a role to play, Israel, the church, and the Gentile nations. Um, because let's, let's, let's back up for just a second. So we talked about in the kingdom there will be basically two, let's call them types of people, people in their physical bodies and people in their glorified bodies. Okay, But in terms of groups... In the kingdom, there will be three. There will be Jews, or the, the nation of Israel, whose kingdom it is, in, emanating from Jerusalem. The church, the bride of Christ. And then Gentile believers. Uh, who, who constitutes that third group? Because, you know, if you're saved in the Old Testament, prior to the time of Christ, you're essentially a Jew. Even a Gentile who converted to Judaism was a proselyte and part of the Jewish faith, if you will, system. If you're saved in the present age, you're part of the church, the bride of Christ. So where is that? what are we talking about when we talk about that third category of Gentile believers? Any believers from the tribulation. Believers from the tribulation. Is that what you were going to say? Yeah, I was also going to add about to, to Gary's question as well. I, isn't the millennium also to fulfill some of the old, the old messianic covenants and stuff too? Well, the millennium, so I don't want to lose track of what I was going to say, but the, the, the question is, doesn't the millennium also fulfill Old Testament? Yes, there's several prophecies that find their fulfillment in the, in the millennium. So from a prophetic standpoint, there has to be a millennium. But I think he was, Gary was question was more in terms of from God's perspective and the plan of the ages, where does the millennium fit in? So now remind me what we were just talking about. Uh, <laughs> Wait, I have a question. <laughs> uh, oh, yeah. So, so where do the Gentiles come from? The, they are Gentiles that are saved during the tribulation. Uh, Revelation 7, people of every nation, tribe, tongue, and language will come out of the tribulation. They're not part of the church because the church ends at the rapture. So they're not part of the body of Christ. They're not necessarily Jews who are regathered into the land having believed the gospel, but they are still believers. They believe the good news and they're in the kingdom. So you've got three groups of people, but you've got some of them are in their glorified bodies, some of them are in their physical bodies. So then there was a couple more questions over here. Yeah? I just had a quick question. So coming into the millennium, those that, those that came out of the tribulation, those believers, and then those children that are born, Yeah, so 
the question is, are the believers that come out of the tribulation in their physical bodies, survive it, and enter the kingdom, the, the sheep, essentially, the ones to whom he says, come ye, blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom, are they, uh, and are still in their normal bodies, are they going to have a longevity of life, or are they going to have their more traditional lifespan like we see today? Uh, the answer is no, they will have longevity of life. Because every believer, at, and this is what, it's a kind of a complex uh topic and I would not die on the hill of the conclusions that I've reached because it's definitely a theological conclusion there's not one verse that we can cite that says thus saith the Lord but as we compare scripture with scripture and connect the dots this is uh, what I've come up with the article by the way is called death in the millennium and it's about 30 pages and I I make the point that according to the new covenant passages like Ezekiel 36 and Jeremiah 31 we know that the new covenant is inaugurated when Christ comes back so that's you know, the second coming. And we know that once the new covenant is enforced, believers won't sin. And we know that other things like the longevity of life and so forth. So, um, and they won't die either. So they're actually, they're, they're going to have a very long life until they get their glorified bodies at the end of the millennium. But their children, which you referenced, uh, who are born, uh, you know, through natural means, just like people have babies all the time, um, they're, they're going to live longer regardless of whether they're saved or unsaved just because of the natural circumstances where sin is more held in check and things are more just. But obviously, if, a, if one of those children never believes the gospel, whenever they do die, they will spend eternity in a place of torment called hell. But they'll need to believe the gospel like every human being. And then, was there something else over here? All right. So we already touched on this in terms of the in terms of the bema, but from a dispensational um, view, uh, the concept of who is in center stage. So is the difference between is so at the very beginning, you know, the whole world, then Israel, then the church. The only difference between the church and the Israel thing, because all at all dispensations, people can receive the gift of eternal life, right. indwelling of the spirit. Is the only difference between the church and Israel? Well, there are a lot of differences, well, but I that mean, is one of them. Like getting, receiving the gift of eternal life and the concept of being the center stage of the dispensation is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in Gentiles. Yeah, so um, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to repeat it because you're close enough. I think the microphone caught it. Um, so... Obviously, he, what he's talking about is that in the present church age, one of the blessings that the church has is the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's unique to the present age. The Old Testament saints did not have the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, it's for that reason, for example, in, uh, in uh, Psalm 51 that David prayed in his famous penitent prayer after the Bathsheba incident and Uriah incident, uh, uh, Lord, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. See, we never have to pray that because as we, we actually just talked about this Wednesday night, the Holy Spirit is a permanent uh, gift. And we're actually going to be touching on that again, uh, touching on that a bit in our service uh, to follow. So that's, that is one of the distinctions between the church and Israel. Um, today, anybody who believes the gospel and receives eternal life has the permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
Um, there are many differences, and I, if you go back, I don't remember which session it was, but somewhere in this What Lies Ahead series, uh, in the book it's in the early first chapter, I think, or maybe the second chapter, because the first chapter is why should we study this stuff. But I talk about many differences, and if you recall, I had a chart with five purposes of the church and five purposes of for Israel, there are certain blessings that come with being part of the church and certain blessings that Israel had. So that's not the only distinction, but that is uh, a distinction. But what you're talking about, which I want to add on because it's a good point, is that at, at any point in human history, God, if you think of the, the human history as a stage, God has a people group that is center stage in that act. They're the primary focus of that act. So obviously it was Adam and Eve, and then it was Noah and his family, then it was Abraham, and then Moses and Israel. Today it's the church. Um, the tribulation is just an extension of Daniel's Israel period, the 490-year period. So at that time, you know, Israel is sort of still center stage, and there's a great conflict between the Antichrist and Israel. But who will be center stage during the millennium? Christ, very good, yeah. Almost literally, because he'll be sitting on top of the hill. By the way, the geography of Jerusalem, according to Isaiah, is massively changed during the millennium after the Battle of Armageddon, and it's much larger than it is uh, today. And the millennial temple, which is described in detail in uh, Ezekiel chapters 40 to 48, is massively bigger than Herod's temple, than Solomon's temple before that, and bigger than the tribulation temple uh, will be. Uh, so, yeah, Christ, which is God's plan all along. You know, Christ ultimately is sort of supposed to be center stage, if you will, in every era, every dispensation, which is a biblical term, by the way, from Ephesians 3. Um, you know, Israel, for example, was supposed to cross the Jordan, go into Canaan, and be a light to the pagan nations around them, so that they would testify to the unity of Yahweh, the goodness uh, of the Creator, and people would come flocking uh, to Israel and say, we want your God. And they would abandon their pagan gods. Obviously, Israel failed, and instead they intermarried and intermingled, and, and, uh, and the church today was supposed to do the same thing, be a light on a hill. And, and in some cases, we're succeeding, but by and large, we're, we're not. We're, we're The church, according to uh, Scripture, is going to get further and further away from the Lord. There's going to be a great end times apostasy. And that's why, you know, you see uh, the remnant principle at play, where, where there's a remnant who is still faithful to the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, not compromised. Uh, but the goal is ultimately... To point to Christ. We're supposed to be a reflection of Christ. That won't happen ultimately. I mean, we, we have an obligation and a duty, and the Spirit of God convicts us to do that if we're following Him and yielding to the Spirit. But we just know prophetically that that's not going to ultimately succeed globally until the Prince of Peace himself is sitting on the throne and comes back. So that's the, that's the center stage in the millennium. Yeah? I'm wondering... In the tribulation period, you know, the Christians won't be getting the mark of the beast. Do you think the mark of the beast will be sort of almost renewable? Because, like, let's say you got saved after it already happened, right? And then... Oh, well, you can't get saved if you take the mark of the beast. It's over. It's done. Your fate is sealed. So, um, 
I, I, that's the first time in 32 years I've been asked a question about a renewable mark of the beast. <laughs> Interesting. I mean, that's brilliant. I mean, I had not thought about it. That's what I love about young minds. They're thinking about things we just don't think about. And it's a brilliant question. Um, by the way, I want to apologize for uh, inaccurately titling today's session The Sheep and the Goats Judgment. I meant to call it the Q&A uh, session. Um, yeah, no, so no, this is good. I love it. I, we have no agenda. I'm not just trying to get through an outline. So if we don't get to the sheep and the goats text, we will certainly do it uh, at the next, uh, you know, at our next session. So this is, I, I love the interaction, the Q&A. And, and usually I learn from y'all's questions as well. So someone else with a question. Yeah. Well, I was—I didn't really understand it either. I was trying to just kind of skip by. Um, no, I think what you were saying is, at if someone gets saved after the mark of the beast has been implemented, which is, happens at the midpoint, uh, can't. And after they've so accepted the mark. After they've taken the mark. Yeah. So like, yeah. let's say they took it and then they got saved. And like, should I shouldn't have this, but. Yeah. Hey, I can go to the stores. It's fine. No, 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 no. So the Bible is. <laughs> no, the Bible is clear that believers will not take the mark of the beast, and that those who do take the mark of the beast, their fate is sealed. They will not believe after that. So, but remember, the mark of the beast is something that only comes into play after the rapture three and a half years into the tribulation period when the Antichrist sets himself up as God and demands worship. And at that point, you have... So that's why Jesus says that once you see the abomination of desolation, head for the hills, hide out, you know, it's going to get really, really bad. So what we see happening today, by the way, which this is always the case, uh, is a setting of the stage for what could potentially... Uh, be used by the Antichrist to fulfill Scripture. So we don't know God's timetable, but if, for example, the rapture were to happen today, it seems very logical that this um, vaccine passport technology, which I've been reading a lot about uh, lately, uh, and my prediction, and it's just that, it's by no means a biblical truth, but I believe we are very soon going to be in a situation where, notwithstanding the fact that governors like our own governor have said, oh, we'll never have a vaccine passport, what they mean when they say that is that there will never be one central, you know, uh, global application on your phone that everyone uses the same thing, or one identical physical card. It's not going to be physical, by the way. It's going to be digital. That's the age we live in. I mean, paper is a thing of the past. But uh, what, what they're saying is, what I believe they're meaning is they're not going to be one particular app. But what I've been reading about in California, and I just came from there, saw some headlines there in physical papers, I've been reading about it in New York, is that they are going to require people to prove that they've taken the vaccine to do just about anything, but they're going to leave it up to each state to use one of four or five approved technologies. So there'll be, just like there were three companies that were given trillions of dollars, literally combined, to come up with vaccines, uh, there will be multiple companies that will be approved and sanctioned to come up with a mechanism to prove that you're vaccinated. So right now, 
in California, for example, there are several things that require you to prove you're vaccinated. But all they do is you, know, you pull out your receipt from the little vaccine tent you went to or your paper copy where the nurse signed it and, and, and you show that and that suffices. But that's not going to do for the long term because they know people can fake that and forge that. And so I believe they're going to come up with some type of uh, approved technology. And there'll be multiple ones globally on different parts of the world. By the way, China already has one. <laughs> um, and, and, then is, and is, if you don't have one of those approved ones... Just like a, an actual passport, you know, passports are different in different countries, but, uh, you know, you have to have an approved passport to travel internationally. I think you'll have to have an approved, uh, you know, proof of uh, vaccine, which people call the vaccine passport. And to me, that technology w certainly lends itself to something that the Antichrist might Use. I'm not saying that that's the mark of the beast, because the mark of the beast won't happen until the tribulation, but it could be the technology that becomes the mark of the beast. So, any, yes? So, remember, like, I mean, I, I remember in, in Israel, the whole nation's going to say, Hosanna, Hosanna, blesses he, and who comes in the name of the Lord. Do you think the Antichrist will be mad at them because, like, they won't take the mark of the beast at the midpoint? Because the thing is, if the whole nation believes in Jesus, that means they must not have taken the mark of the beast. You think that's why he's he's kind of so? I think certainly breaks his peace treaty. Yeah, so certainly the Antichrist is going to be angry at Israel for for rejecting him, if you will, rejecting his regime. Um, but Satan hates Israel because he's hated Israel all along. He, the Israel is. The seed of Abraham, the ultimate seed of Abraham is Jesus, the son of David. So he, Satan hates Israel, and he's doing everything he can to destroy uh, Israel. And that's been true for, for centuries. Um, so one other comment, not every Jew will believe the gospel. There will be Jews that take the mark of the beast and reject him. And they will not be part of the regathering in belief. Uh, just like today, there are Jews in Israel who believe they're true believers. We call them Messianic Jews. And there are Jews that are Jewish uh, by their uh, lineage, but they're not believers. They're unsaved. So uh, at the return of Christ, uh, there will be a great harvest of Jewish people who believe the gospel and are ushered into the long-awaited kingdom. So we got through, this is all in the context of end times judgments. And we were kind of putting the sheep and the goats in context of these judgments. When we come back next time, we'll finish out by looking at the other two judgments that take place in the future, which are the final judgment of Satan and ultimately the great white throne judgment, one of the most sobering passages in all of the Bible. And then I would like to look at the text of the sheep and the goats and just make some, uh, point out some things there, because there are some passages in some verses in that passage that sometimes are misunderstood and can be confusing. So, so we will, uh, lots more to come in the overall series of what lies ahead, and uh, we'll still have at least one more uh, related to the uh, Olivet Discourse. All right? Awesome. Well, let's dismiss, and we'll come back again at 10 o'clock. And for those of you that are live streaming, the live stream will start roughly about 10.30, uh, give or take.